August moon. Oh, I got a boil on my thigh. Listening to WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor today in the studio. I'm so happy to have Gary Schmidt here with me. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, T. Thanks for having me here. And and I'd like to say um, a shout out and a thanks to Liz for engineering. The Liz is here. And also James. Um, your son has also come down for the program. So we've got oh. a studio audience. We have today. a studio audience. That's right. <laughs> As well as all our listeners out there in Radio right. Land, <laughs> um, but thanks, thanks, Gary, for driving down um, today from Grand Rapids. Well, actually, Alto. Alto, right? It's a little town southeast of Grand Rapids. Yeah. And that's where you you live on the old Buck Farm. On the old Buck Farm, Mr. Buck was a stagecoach driver during the Civil War, so the house was built. Well, it's on a map from 1837, so we're not quite sure how old the house is other than that. But that's that's a goodly age for a Michigan house. And it was on the map. It was on the map. <laughs> it was on the map, yeah, absolutely. That's pretty wonderful. So you, how did you actually, did you endeavor to find that out, or did you just kind of stumble upon that uh, you know, we historic looked, fact? We looked for years, actually, to find a house outside of Grand Rapids that was older. We didn't think that old, but that was older. <laughs> And that had a little bit of land on it. And so we looked and looked and finally came to Little Alto. And there was this beautiful old farmhouse with some good land around it, more than we had thought. And we didn't know anything about the history, but we loved the house. And so we moved in. Yeah. Mm. And and you say also um, that it's a bit of an inspiration you find being in, in that house on that land. Oh, sure. I mean, it's for someone who likes stories to to be in a house that has lots of stories. Um, we were told ghost stories about the house before we moved in, oh, which was really cool, which we never told our kids, actually. James, ready Though to hear one? James has what's heard the them. best one? Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, there was a family before us that claimed that as they were sitting in the living room, which was the front room of the house, they were sitting there on, and there was a table by the wood stove, and suddenly all the books that were on the table were swept away, and they felt something there. Which is a great story. Um, we haven't felt anything <laughs> other than the dogs, but this, yeah, but it's a terrific story. I love that. Other than the, other than the, what did you say? Other than the dogs, they uh, they like to sweep things off tables. Oh, too. oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, no ghosties. No ghosts. Well, so far, right? Yeah, so far. Um, well, before we go any further here, I'll read the the back, um, the short bio in the back of what came from the stars um, out in 2012 with Clarion Books. We've got a lot of your books. We're lucky to have them here on the table with us. Uh, what came from the stars? Also, Martine de Porez here. Um, 
by written by you, Gary, and illustrated by David uh, Diaz. David Diaz, yeah. Um, we've also got Lizzie Bright and the Buckminster Boy, a Newbery Award winner. Um, Trouble, First Boy. We've got the Wednesday Wars, uh, Wars also the, a Newbery um, uh, Book winner, and OK For Now, a National Book Award finalist. So... Um, it's probably in your bio. Now I've said it, Gary. Oh, dear. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, here we go anyway. Um, Gary D. Schmidt is the best-selling author of the National Book Award finalist book, OK For Now, the Newbery Honor and Prince Honor book, Lizzie Bright and the Buckminster Boy, and the Newbery Honor book, The Wednesday Wars. He is a professor of English at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, and, and actually... Gary, you, do you have a website too, right? Is that well, people had to kind of? Uh, yeah, there's a uh, a website that the publisher Houghton Mifflin put up, but it only came after many many requests that I put one up, and finally they realized not only do I not have the skill, but not the interest either, and so so they said you're not going to do this, are you? And I said no, I'm really not, and so they they just did it themselves. So there's a website to which I've never gone. <clears throat> about about it, but but, that's but others could go. Others could so, so others choose could go. to go. That's right. Well, and you just had some exciting news um, this last Wednesday. So a week ago, is it? Oh, a new book. Yeah. Um, right. There's a. You are busy. You're too. Who's you're too busy? To do <laughs> I guess. This. I guess. It's a book about. It's a short book, and which is good for me for a change. Narrated by a young kid, and it's based on a true story of a, a kiddo in, I think it was Arkansas. And I ran across a story about him, it must be six, eight years ago, that just stuck with me. And it's a kid who had two children. He was 13, and he had two children of his own. Which, When he was 13? When he was 13, which really fascinates me. I mean, what, what is it like to be 13 years old, to be a father? And, then, of course, the obvious questions, and questions always start novels. How how can you possibly be a father at age 13? And is it possible beyond biology to be a father in any real way? And so the novel is an exploration of that. It's set up in, in Maine. Um, and the kid is 14, and he has one child. But it's based upon the questions that began with that newspaper article. And that's that's so something rooted, a, a germination of an idea. Right, exactly. In, in, a, in a fact that you found. Exactly. One that raises questions, because I think all great stories have questions to begin with, and that's that's one that that started. And what time period? Present. The, the, the present. present. Yeah. So not looking to the past as no, it's no, right not now. at all. It's it's the present time period, right? But it's interesting. Then you decide to make these changes, make the boy one year older, and right. with and one child. Right. It's it, for the sake of the story. You, you're. I'm not telling that kiddo's story. I'm telling, working with the questions that that kiddo's story raised for me. And so that's why it's a little bit different there. Plus, it's set down, the, the events of the, the real kid were down south. I'm not so familiar with that territory and with all the moors down there. And so I am familiar with New England. And it seemed to me that it could make that more authentic as a story if I tell it set up, an, up in a New England farm. And that's where a lot of the, the books that we have on the table take place. Right. What, the latest, what came from the stars? It's in Plymouth. Um, yeah, Plymouth, Massachusetts. A beautiful, wonderful, great town. And then this, uh, was this Phippsburg? Phippsburg, Maine. Maine. The real events Bright? of the story, um, obviously the, the fantasy doesn't have real events that occurred in Plymouth, but I like Plymouth. Right. Um, this one did have, the events of this did the, occur li- there. And that's Lizzie Bright and the Buckminster Boy. Right. It's a true story. The backstory is a true story of an island community that was destroyed when Maine went to try and get, to become 
more economically stable through tourism. Almost 100 years ago, exactly. And there was an island uh, off the coast of Harpswell. And there's a community there that had the two groups that were most hated in New England at the time, and that's African-Americans and Irish-Americans. And those groups lived together in this wonderful community on that island, about 160 people. And it was uh, Malaga? Malaga Island. And and the Malaga community then, taking the name of the island. Exactly, exactly. And so that island was, that community was dispersed by the governor. Um, Was that in the 50s? Because then. The 1912. Oh, oh, good. So, well, not good, but (laughs) but that it seems further away in time because reading about it seems, well, it seems so recent, actually, to rate. Well, do you want to tell us a little bit about what the government did to bring in the tourists? Well, they were called rusticators. Isn't that a great word? To Ah. rusticate and rusticators. Um, And they wanted to bring them into this one area, but the area looked over. The, the island, it's only a little bit off the coast, and there was a shantytown there that the governor did not want, Governor Playstead. And in order to get rid of that, that eyesore, as he saw it, he went down, and, and the quote was, I'll burn them out. I'll burn them out. That was the quote. And so they... And the, and um, this was 1912. 1912. Most of them left. Um, one family was dragged off and set on a raft. No kidding. And there were eight that were finally remaining there, and they were eventually arrested. And, and taken to a home. Taken down to a home. And all the research when I was doing the book a few years ago um, ended with this, that all eight people died within about two weeks and were buried in a mass grave. But the truth, which has just come out within the last year, is actually much worse. That all worse those, than that. Worse than that. All those people were kept. Uh, the women were all forcibly sterilized. And the, all of them who remained were um, were kept for about 20 years. They died in the 30s. They were not insane, but they were imprisoned in that place until the 1930s. So it's an awful, horrible story. But it's a story that is repeated in most of our states. I mean, wherever I go, and if someone has read this, they'll say, well, in name of the state, this happened. And it's very, very similar. Yeah. Well, that must have been some book tour then, Gary, when you That's thought, oh, things that I don't want to learn about the United States of America in some ways, but well, but put, you need to know. You sure, and, just, I think, and that's, and that's one, of, one of the reasons I wrote it, because yes. it's such an American story. Um, it's, it's repeated again and again. It was put on in a play form um, in the Minneapolis Children's Theater, and when I went up to see the, the rehearsals and just to be a presence there for the rehearsals, they told me the story of a highway that had to go through Minneapolis and how it was placed right through an African-American community because they were the weakest in terms of representation. And that destroys, obviously, you know, an eight-lane highway through a community is going to destroy the neighborhood. That and that's sounds exactly familiar. what happened. Yeah, familiar with Detroit. Familiar. Exactly. Um, so you, this is, um, so, and this is a Newbery honor book. Right. Um, this is a story for younger readers. And you don't right. shy away from talking to, having a story with difficult ideas. May as well tell the truth, right? I mean, it's, it seems to me important that, I mean, that kids can recognize those things which are good and lovely and beautiful and those things which are not. And it seems to me that a story like this told in a way that's aimed at a middle grade or a young adult audience can in fact impact them very powerfully. And that's what I hope to, it does. And there is, like, at the core of the story um, is a friendship Right. There's a young boy who comes from Boston from outside, and he befriends one of the young girls on the island. And that the story really is about their community and the friendship that they form. 
when this, this book was the devil to write. It, it, it took was? me it took me a year first to write it as nonfiction, and it just stunk. It was terrible. Oh, it's so the and original so idea was nonfiction. Um, I work in a small outbuilding, and there's a wood stove there. So all I have to do is take the pages and throw them in the wood stove, and I'm good. And since I work on a typewriter, not a computer, you know that really ends it. So then the second year, it was all about Lizzie. She's the young girl who's so on the island. So you literally didn't keep a copy didn't keep of that. You didn't no, put any of the pages. Rid, no, threw it all out, burned it all. The second year was Lizzie's story, and that stunk too. And I kept two pages, two pages only, and I burned all the rest. And then the third year, finally, 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 um, Turner was was a character. And I took it as a cue from, there's a great book by Clyde Edgerton called The Float Plane Notebooks. And in that, there's a Southern family, and he couldn't make it work, couldn't make it work. And finally, he brought an outsider. There's a young girl who marries into the family who's a Yankee. And then it's all from her point of view. And so the reader is defamiliarized. Um, and I thought that would be exactly the same. I could bring a kid from outside who is, doesn't know anything about Maine, doesn't know anything about these events, and just like the reader is made an outsider. And then and the reader learns as, as exactly. your main character learns exactly. or narrator. Right, and it creates, you hope, empathy between them. Mm. So, yeah, that's how that worked. So it's interesting to think about this as an idea of, um, I don't know how... The way revision works, you actually literally, you were re-singing the project. Yeah, sometimes it has to be like that, where you are, you just know you've gone wrong. It's just, it's from the very beginning. It's not like, oh, I mean, I guess it's just recognizing that sometimes a dead horse is really a dead horse, and you can't revive it. And so you put that either away, or you look at it from a completely different point of view. And sometimes you come up with a project... I mean, I had a project once where I thought it would be fun to retell the story of the Wizard of Oz from the point of view of Toto. Oh, that's great. But, but <laughs> I'd read that. Work. It just didn't work. It and didn't. No. And after a while, I thought, wow, this is really a bad idea for me. What? No. And then you put it away well, and move well, on to something that might be better. Maybe we'll have some callers. Maybe somebody wants to, to see that <laughs> to see story. It from Toto. What, if, what if you did it with David Diaz? Oh, no, I think that's a that dead project. That would be project. even worse. Yeah, no, it's a dead project. Well, that I'm learning happen. a lot here. I'm learning that... <laughs> A, I should probably get a wood stove. Definitely B, a wood stove. Three years isn't. Oh yeah. A long time. No, no. Most books, most novels, at least for me. I mean, some people write them very, very quickly, but for me, it's going to be about a two and a half to three year process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what. We'll take a short break, and then we'll come back. Um, maybe we'll hear then some from what came from the stars, Gary. Sure. Does that sound good? Sure, that'd be good. Um, the the latest book out with Clarion Books, um, but there's one to come, folks. Also, Gary Schmidt will be giving a lecture tomorrow at UMA at five ten. So more about that when we come back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel. Right back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Gary Schmidt is here in the studio, um, fresh from the road. Uh, <laughs> fresh from the road. <laughs> and you'll be in town tomorrow at the Art Museum yes. giving a talk, The actually the Lamstein Lecture um, on children's literature, and right. the title, That Kid in the Back Row, the one with the red shirt, he matters. Right. And will you, so why'd you title it that? Uh, I was up north in northern Michigan, and there was, this is giving it away. Is this okay? Is it too much? No, that's all right, I guess. If, if you want to turn away, no, I should no, never I'm say here. they should turn away. <laughs> <laughs> Don't turn the dial. Stay right here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. <laughs> it's a, um, I was up north at Houghton Lake, and then a little further north than that at a uh, reservation school mm. with fifth graders. And there was a, uh, as I went into the teacher's lounge, before, which always scared me as a kid to go into the teacher's lounge. It was always smoky and the teachers were there. Anyway, still scares <laughs> and me to go in. The chairs were bigger. The chairs yeah. were big. <laughs> and the teachers said to me, um, please be careful with our kids. And I said, well, of course, you know, I'm always careful with the, with the kids. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. We've had more than our usual number of suicides this year, mostly fathers. It just blew me away. More than our usual number? I mean, what does that even mean? More than our usual number? Anyway, I went into a, um, I went into the event. The kids were terrific. They were great at this school. I, I had a great time, and they were writing. And there was a kid in the back row with a red shirt who wrote this quite amazing thing, which he kept very private until the very end. And that's what the lecture is about, why it is that children's books and children's writing is so important. And that's my, is that a cliffhanger? Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah. So tomorrow. At we'll talk about that. 510 yeah. at UMA mm -hmm. um, for the Lamstein Lecture. Because um, this is actually something that I was interested in talking with you about, Gary, because, um, you know, your PhD is in medieval literature, not a natural, perhaps. That doesn't um, sound like a crossover. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> A good friend of mine also has hers in there, and, and I think she could turn on a great children's book. But I, I think, yeah. But so it's not. It, how did it happen for sure. you? Yeah. And it's it's obvious to me because of the work that we have here on the table before us, and to hear you talk about even how the idea is to talk about the young readers as kiddos. Like I can see right. that you what value, what worth you see. Um, in this, so why? How yeah. did this mission start, or what do you? Um, well, I was working on a dissertation and finishing it up, and you know how long and hard and laborious those pieces are. And it was the days, the earliest days of word processing, and I'm just stupid at this technology anyway. But it was the very earliest days, and I had just finished typing in something over a hundred Latin prayers with their appropriate footnotes. It had taken me forever because they were in Latin and I was a slow typer anyway. And I hit the wrong button, of course. I hit the wrong button and they all disappeared. And what you should do immediately at that point is to start retyping them in. I mean, that's what you really, really should do. Any disciplined grown up would do that. But I was so sick of it and just so disheartened that I just, I tried a novel. I thought, well, I'm not gonna do that. And if you write a novel, you know, there's no footnotes unless you're in a Bakov. There's no footnotes in a novel. And so I just thought, I thought how pleasant it would be to try that. And I did, and I loved it. And so while I was finishing up the dissertation, I wrote this first novel, and it stunk. It was terrible. And I sent it away to an editor, and it's, she goes, wow, this stinks. It's terrible. 
But, but you did you, it. But I did it. And she said, why don't you write something else back to us? Um, try, it, try it again. Which is a great letter to get, actually, if you're a beginning writer, to, to hear, okay, not this one, but we like it enough that we'd like you to try something else. And there was a lot of pleasure in that. I mean, I really enjoyed it. And it does seem to me, I mean, what a privilege to be able to talk to middle school kids, to be able to write to them. So your first audience for the first novel... Was middle school. Right. How did that happen? Like, how did you... Yeah, my wife and I collected children's books for the fun of it. Because there's a pleasure in that because they're so hard to get really good copies. Because they're kids' books, you know, they're going to get wrecked up. And we would, of course, read all of them, and we loved, or at least I loved, the voices of uh, of the great narrators, the really, really powerful voices of those narrators, which have to capture a reader instantly. I mean, if you're if you're an adult, you can put up with Thomas Hardy for 20 pages before you get off the heath, <laughs> and you can put up with Dickens for a while and then get into the story, but a kiddo is not going to give you 20 pages if you don't capture with that voice right away you know, forget it. The book isn't going to go. And so it seemed to me that that's a real challenge and a real interesting thing. And to talk about important, serious things to a child audience in a way that's still really, not still, but that is engaging, that's a great challenge for a writer. And it seemed to me that this is an area that provided interesting narrative challenges, and I love those. Hmm. So, And you, uh, growing up, what were your favorite books? What are moments that you remember? From- yeah, that was it was not the case that I was a reader so much. Um, we were tracked early on. It was called tracking. And, and this was in New York State? New York State. Okay. And so in, um, in first grade, we were tracked into tracks one, two, and three, though they were named after vegetables, so that we, as if we couldn't figure out who were the smart kids and who were the dumb kids. And I was the stupid kid. I was in the pumpkin group. And so we weren't really taught to read because, you know, we were going to serve French fries at McDonald's for the rest of our lives. And you don't really need to read very much beyond French fry. And there was a, that was for a couple of years. And so books and writing and reading were, to me, in early grades, very, very threatening. I mean, that you, if you can't do it, you've got to develop all sorts of strategies to avoid doing it. And there was this great teacher in Ms. Kavikoff, um, who I've talked about before on radio, who was who just liked me, and we would meet out in the playground. But she taught track one, and I was stupid. I was in track three. And the day came, she walks into my classroom. She takes me by the hand. I thought I was being dismissed. I thought I was being expelled because there's no place to go after you're a pumpkin. And oh. she, she took me into her classroom, and she had a, a, a desk filled with books. And they were all too young, you know, like Dr. Seuss, but I couldn't read them. And so she sat down with me, and for uncounted hours, uncounted hours, she taught me how to read again, or how to read for the first time. I was way older. And it was, I mean, that's why I'm sitting right here with you right now, because of Miss Kavikoff. She then read, she left in 76, emigrated to Israel, um, and today, still a teacher, is teaching Ethiopian women traditional tapestry techniques in Israel. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Isn't that incredible? What a wonderful person uh, she, she sounds. And and so you are in touch. We are in touch now. Um, I did an NPR interview, I don't know, a year and a half or so ago, and they searched her out. They found her, because I didn't even know her first name, you know, your early teachers. Right. You don't keep, well, they don't. No. They don't, they don't have even have names, names right. <laughs> um, they found her sister in Baltimore, who then contacted uh, my Miss Cabot. Her name is Phyllis, Phyllis Block now, who lives in Israel. 
And then she got in contact with me, and we've gone back and forth. She sent me pictures that she had of me in second grade, I think it was. Wow. It was amazing, amazing. She was very fond of you. She, well, she was a great teacher. She was a born teacher. And so you, you were the, the, the kid in the red shirt, basically, in some ways. In some ways. This kid was more beat up than me. Um, but you're the kid who, who doesn't want to read because you're embarrassed that you can't do it well. There's a lot of kids like that. I mean, in, in our country, there's nine, 90 million, I think is the latest stat that came out recently that of people who are utterly illiterate. 90 million in the United States of America. People or children? People, are you saying that? people adults and children yeah. together. Yeah, it's an amazing stat. For our country. For our that's, country. That's a shame. That's a yeah. real shame. Yeah, that shouldn't be. Right. So, okay, yeah, that's really so, why I did that, why I've gotten into that whole field. And you also, so you teach um, also an MF, in an MFA, Hamline University's MFA program um, in, in writing Paul, for children. Right, in the summertime, I do that. Um, it's a terrific, amazing faculty of about um, 14 or 15 in a graduate program. And we have these students who come who are wonderfully talented, wonderfully talented. And we, it's a low residency program. So we're there for them with two weeks in the in the summer and two weeks in January, but I teach at Calvin in January, so I only go for the for the summer ones, which is what I tell them when I say why I can't go to St. Paul in the winter time. <laughs> I think there are probably other reasons not to go to St. Paul in the winter time. I, I don't know. Think about our winter. I don't know. I don't no, think they're gonna. No, not even close. Really? Oh, not even close. No. Carrie, I believe you. You seem like a nice guy. <laughs> so when you so when you're talking about your passion and sort of part of your mission of why you are writing these books and working in children's literature or young adult, it's it's weird. I feel like it's a large like a the it's such a change, changeable group, you know, from mm. early readers to middle grade readers and then young adult. Uh, right, it is. It's it's, and of course, those are areas that are that are defined by people who market books more than anything else, I suppose, because any kids' book is a work of literature and should be interesting and available to any reader. That's what's so intriguing. I mean, it's the only kind of literature which is defined by its audience. I mean, it's 18th century is defined by its period, and oh, English literature is defined by its by its area, its geography. But children's literature is defined by its audience. But it's an error, an, an error to say, though, that it's exclusive. So that if you say children's books are only for children, those are the books you see, you know, at the grocery store when you're about to head out and, you know, the things that are just written quick. But I think a work of good children's literature should, in fact, be available to any reader. And find Any reader should find it interesting. You should be able to open up a Chris Van Allsburg book if you're 8 or 80 and be enthralled. And that's what's so interesting about the genre. Yes. Well, and I think that more people are probably, um, you know, with J.K. Rowling and sure, Philip, huge readership. Philip Pullman. Well, young adult Compass. literature is now defined, if I can get this right, I think the age group that marketers consider for that is ages 14 to, are you ready, 40. That's defined oh, that's as young, young adult. <laughs> And that's huge. I mean, if you think about the differences between a 40-year-old right. and a 14-year-old, that's pretty big. But they're still trying to... Get, but not they're marketing just, the same books. Like, why not just to say, till you're, you go, till yeah, you kick till the you bucket. Go, exactly. Yeah, like, exactly. why even try to put it at 40? That sounds more like Twilight-driven to me yeah, somehow, or so. something like we were... Maybe or so. Or Catching Fire, you know, the, the yeah. other series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. But and it's always changing. But it, always it sounded changing. eerie when you were saying it because to me it felt very similar to the idea of these tracks or something. I just was feeling. Yeah, like, <laughs> and of course no one fits into that exactly. I mean, there'll be kids who read one of these books, say, who are to my mind way too young for. I taught, went to a school uh, of third graders who had read Wednesday Wars, and I said to the teacher, "Really? Yeah. I just couldn't believe that they had read it, but they were great. They got it. They really got it well. So that that's great. I mean, if that can happen. Yeah." But it is weird to feel like, because I was thinking about how I was enjoying reading um, as I was starting the Wednesday Wars and okay for now. Um, but then I was thinking, I have a, a nephew and he, I thought, well, he'll be too old for it uh. because, well, because I think he's like fif- 16. He just turned, you know, so he is, right. but not later on, but it's that exactly. weird age That's... where you wouldn't read it, but maybe later on you'd pick it up again and, exactly and connect right. to it. Right. There is a time in your teen years when you're too old for children's books and then you get back and yeah. you come back to them. And that's great. Isn't that interesting about the genre? I mean, it's fascinating. And I think you would read them very differently. I mean, imagine going to a book that you loved as a kiddo that you yes. know you see as an adult now and sometimes you're going to love it in a different way. Other times... Not so much. Not so much. I I got a book. What, yeah, what are you thinking of when you say uh, that? The Duchess Bakes a Cake. Mm. And it was one of my favorite books, Virginia Call, K-A-H-L. I loved it. I loved it. So I finally tracked it down, got it, and it came in brown paper. You know, is that perfect? Ooh, so yes. package, a brown paper package tied up with string. <laughs> so you, so we go, I get all the kids around, and I have six kids, so it's a lot. And we're sitting on the couch, and I go, you're going to love this book. So I open it up, and I said, this is my favorite book. And I read it, and it was terrible. It was just terrible. I hated it, and the kids all hated it. They looked at you like, like hmm. You like this book? <laughs> Last just, time Dad gets to oh, pick. <laughs> it was just terrible. And it's true. I mean, sometimes you, you, know, you did like a book that maybe wasn't so hot. But hmm. that's way, the way of it, too. Yeah. We'll take a short break and we'll be back. Sure. Um, that, and when we come back, let's hear something from the, the book, some of the books we have on the table. Today on Living Writers, Gary Schmidt is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Living Writers. It's springtime and Gary Schmidt is here. Um, and we've got the Liz behind the glass engineering. Uh, great music picks uh, Gary today. And amazing Thanks. that Liz found them all amazing. in our collection here. It's an amazing collection. Just yeah. 
That's quite stunning, actually. That's that's just really cool. It's 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 the power of uh, this college radio station. Like I think we all, the, everyone that kind of comes in and out at different times. I, I feel like now it's going to sound like I'm to- tooting WCBN. No, porn. you should. You should. That's great. But it's a bit of a magical place. It seems that way. It seems that way. <laughs> anyway, well, now that I've done that tasteless thing, no. <laughs> um, no, don't hide the pride, right? Right. Um, so, but we've got these great books of yours here on the table. Um, what came from the stars? Um, this one is interesting uh, to me, Gary, because it's a slight departure um, from what we have been talking about, and yet parts of it are something that feels like a natural outgrowth. Um, now, okay, I'm sort of being mysterious here, no. but but what came from the stars, you introduced this element of fantasy right. that's interwoven with a story that takes place um, on the, the coast of Massachusetts, as right. at Plymouth, um, and the chapters often go back and forth between the fantasy right. gal- uh, do, do with the science fiction exactly. sort of element. Right. Do, yeah, tell us about it. it. It actually, it came about with a bet. It was um, at Hamlin. I I was, I was, I teach with Anne Ursu, who's this terrific, terrific fantasy writer. She has a new book out called The Real Boy, which is amazingly wonderful. And so we're sitting there one day, and um, actually over several days, and I was just giving her a hard time about fantasies. Um, the, you know, they're the <laughs> Be quest. Careful what you do. <laughs> I know it's, but it's the quest, and it's the. You know, no matter how technologically advanced the society is, they always fight with swords. I mean, what's with it with the swords? And, you know, there's jewels and there's the old guy with the beard and the funny shoes who's in touch with the forces of the universe. I mean, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's all the same. Just quest after quest after quest. And so I just gave her a really hard time about it. And she finally said, well, you write one. And so I go, well, all right, then. I was, you know, we were really mature people at that point. She threw down the gauntlet. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like in a... Yeah, quest story. I guess. So it was. It was really that. And and I thought, well, what could I do that doesn't have old men with funny shoes and white beards and and, in touch with the universe and uh, swords, no swords, and that sort of thing to make it something that was really quite different, just just for that fun. And so the idea of it, and it's a hard idea, in fact, is that it it intermixes the sort of high epic fantasy of the world, great war, blah 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 with a kid who's lost his mother, and he blames himself. And in part, he's accurate. He sort of was a little bit at fault. But in any case, his mother has been killed. And so he carries that terrible burden, and he's now living with his sister who has ceased speaking, and his father who is trying to survive with these two children, um, struggling really for his own loss. I mean, the, the terrible loss that he feels as well. And so a very realistic sort of story that's intermixed with this very high fantasy sort of story. And the two are slammed together when um, a necklace carrying all the, the art and knowledge of that culture, which is about to be defeated, um, comes streaking down and he puts it on. Because it lands in his lunchbox. It lands in his lunchbox. Sent by grandma. Exactly. He didn't realize he'd already outgrown the, exactly. <laughs> the action figure lunchbox. Exactly. And suddenly it gives him access, though he doesn't really understand it, to all of that earlier work. And as the novel goes on, he has he becomes more and more part of that ancient culture, though he hardly recognizes it, though everyone else, of course, around him does. Well, he be, in very early on, he begins to speak in the language exactly. um, because when, he's, when he first puts on the necklace, yep. he begins to The words are right absorb. there. 
and no one knows what they mean, including, by the way, the reader. Um, you have to learn the, this language as you go along. Um, there is a glossary, which I resisted. I really didn't want to do it. But um, the, the editor, and she was probably right, said people will go crazy if, they, if there's no glossary for all these <laughs> words. But the, and even the glossary is made up. There's some words there that are just made up and are clearly wrong um, throughout, just so I could have some fun with it. Um, but yeah, it really is. You really have to learn the language as you go through, which is true of any any encounter with a different culture. And that was the point. In some ways, this is a book about what happens when two people who are very different from perhaps different cultures come side by side. How do we learn? How do we how do we understand each other? Um, how do you get past the sort of walls that we build up so easily? And that's kind of what this book is about. And it, and it felt also a, a bit about the loss, the parallels loss yeah. of perhaps this culture and the right. loss of the mother. To Tommy, that loss, the loss of his mother, is as big if not bigger than the loss of this other culture. And at the end of the book, he will be able to, well, sort of gives it away, I suppose, Ooh. a little bit. But mm. there is a sense that having dealing with one loss will help with the other loss, that somehow you will learn the lessons of grief and that you will learn how to handle that grief. Not that it will go away, it won't ever go away, but that he will be able to learn to live with it. Yeah. And maybe that has something to do with the, how he's able to sing the songs of this far, this planet from a far, far galaxy. Yeah, And absolutely. he's the one that's able to sing these songs. He can sing it. He won't at the end. I mean, that will go away. But he can for the time that he needs to learn how to, how to do it. Mm-hmm. There's um, Just before I was, or while I was working on this, actually, there was a great film that came out that sort of didn't get enough attention, I think. It's a kid's film, too. It was called um, Super 8. J.J. Abrams was the, was the uh, director of the film. And maybe he even wrote it. And it was an homage to Steven Spielberg in many ways, but it is this quite amazing film where a kiddo loses his mother, essentially, and in the course of time does come upon an alien who in the climax of the movie is holding him. He's about to kill him, this large alien. And the kid says to him, bad things happen. Bad things happen, but you can still live. I mean, I couldn't believe when I saw it on the film because it was exactly, exactly what I was working on, exactly the same thing. And it was just expressed so perfectly. And so this alien, and this gives away the film too, understands. And with that understanding comes this perfect kind of momentary communion between the two of them. It's absolutely wonderful. And that's kind of what I, the same thing I was trying to work with here. Could we hear part of what came from the stars? Sure. This is uh, towards the beginning um, where Tommy has already put on the, the necklace here. And so he's coming home. And it's his birthday, or about to be his birthday. And this is the scene where he's about to cut the cake and um, connect with his, with his father and sister. Uh, let's see. Tommy went upstairs. He lived in the loft that spanned the whole house and which had been his parents' studio before he was born, his mother painting portraits at one end and his father painting seascapes at the other. Tommy wasn't sure how they both fit, since even though a loft sounds like a whole lot of room, Tommy could only stand up in the very middle of it, otherwise the ceiling came down to knee height over the floor. There was, however, a window at the south end that looked out over Plymouth, and a window at the north end that looked up the coast as it bent outward, and so with the windows open, it was always cool in the summer, and with the chimney squatting smack dab in the center of the loft, it was always warm in the winter, until the fire went down. After that, Tommy could see his breath shimmer in the freezing air. 
That night, Tommy and Patty and their father cooked out on the dune. They heated up the clam chowder from the day before and dripped maple syrup on cornbread and boiled new carrots from their garden and poured out the first of the cider. Then Tommy's father and sister ran back into the house and they brought out the leaning chocolate-frosted chocolate birthday cake, stopping every few steps to pick up the one candle still lit and to light those blown out by the sea breeze. It was getting colder and darker, and already the first star was showing over the water, but Tommy didn't care. It was his twelfth birthday. He had been alive for 4,383 days. He had been alive with his mother for 4,126 of them. He had been alive without his mother for 257 of them. In the dark, the chain around his neck glowed softly beneath his shirt. His father and Patty got the leaning chocolate-frosted chocolate birthday cake to the fire pit with some of the candles still lit. Patty had brought nut plates and forks and the birthday cake knife, which Tommy took. Wait a minute, said his father. We have to sing before you cut it. So he did. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, he sang. And Patty swayed side to side with the rhythm, smiling, and the sea breeze stroked the blue, gold, red embers bright. And with that wind in his face and looking at the sea and feeling the light fall on him from the first star, and with those he loved beside him and his mother gone, gone, Tommy felt the chain warm and he began to sing too. He sang of parting and of grief. He sang of friends and loved ones who must leave him. He sang of the loneliness of one star without another, he sang in a high keen, as high-pitched as wind, and he felt the melody twine with a strange starlight, and he heard the sound of breath rising out of the ocean, and he sang of that too. And when he finished, he looked at his father and at Patty, who stared at him in amazement and wonder, and he saw in his sister's eyes that she was a little afraid. What? he said. He doesn't get it. Thanks, Gary. That's so. That's such an important moment. It feels like it sets it up. It's, they realize something is going on, but he doesn't, and it won't for a while. But it's really about loneliness and parting. Yeah. And he did, and it's interesting because this the scene where we first get one of um, the words in the glossary, right? Yeah, has, has, has happened. Um, well, or or is the first one. Um, another word that he uses, I think, in school, in his classroom, and the teachers tries to look it up That's in the right. dictionaries. And a, <laughs> he mentions an instrument, <clears throat> an instrument that he knows, but he can't see it anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so he's starting to know that yeah. he, to have that duality happen where he doesn't know why he knows it, but he knows it somehow. Right. And to him, it's completely natural because he's wearing it. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so for... <clears throat> um, Gary, for this too, so you've got the glossary in the back uh, of what came from right. the stars. And then you also have, like you included other art, like artifact, like the Testament too. Right, because it, it seems like there should be some history to this before. Um, and that too was sort of a, a worry on my, my part. I really didn't want to make it a classic, great epic fantasy. But again, the editor suggested that it would be really useful to know some of the, the prehistory to understand what's going on. And I wasn't sure I really wanted to give that. So that's why it's in the, in the voice of one of the characters, because I wanted to make it you know, interesting, to make it, to make it also slanted and biased, because it's his point of view, to give it some sort of edge, I suppose, and not just to kind of give a dry recitation of, here's what happened before the story starts kind of stuff. Um, so that, I wanted to make it fun for a reader. So what did your friend and colleague who wrote The Real Boy, what did what happened? What, what did she think? You know, we haven't really talked about it. We only see each other once, <laughs> uh, once every other summer. I mean, so it's, yeah, we so, haven't really talked about it yet. So this summer. 
Well, we'll talk about it this summer. (laughs) Well, we should remind everyone, actually, that tomorrow you'll be giving a talk at UMA at just 10 after 5 p.m., the Lampstein Lecture on Children's Literature. And the title of your talk will be That Kid in the Back Row, The One with the Red Shirt, He Matters. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, the title being inspired from a recent a recent trip to a reservation in Michigan? Yeah, in Michigan, in northern Michigan. Yeah, about three years ago now. Okay. Yeah. Though I went back last spring, last spring too, but I didn't see him. Mm. Yeah, so I don't know. Well, let's take a short break, sure. and then and we'll come back, and we'll talk more. Today on Living Writers, Gary Schmidt is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Gary Schmidt is here, um, hearkening from Alto, Michigan, from the Old Buck Farm. Um, and Gary will be reading at UMA tomorrow. Uh, well, actually, no. Giving a talk. Giving a talk. And, right. and also reading or, or more of Some a talk? Reading, Some but mostly the talk. Okay. So there you have it, folks. Straight from Gary. <laughs> um, that kid in the back row, the one with the red shirt, he matters. And this is the Lamstein Lecture uh, on children's literature. So 510 at UMA. Um, you know what? So we've got another book on the table here. Um, Martin de Porres, The Rose in the Desert, uh, written, of course, by our guest today, Gary Schmidt, um, illustrated by David Diaz, um, and so this is a picture book. It's a picture um, book, right? So <laughs> One of my very few. Um, picture books are hard, hard to write. They're only four to six hundred words. So to take the whole story and to to condense it to that is a very, very difficult thing. So this book, though it's the shortest by far of all the books on the table here, probably took the longest to write. So how can you walk us through what's the process like? Well. Um, for Martin, for this one, I, I was fascinated by this character. This he's essentially a Saint Francis character in South America, um, the first saint of African descent. descent. Um, just a, an amazing guy, um, and extremely humble. You know, a kind of powerful humility about him 
that is that's overwhelmingly strong. So how did you find this story? This was there were a couple of children's books um, on him early on. None from well, they're pretty old now. One was from 1950 something, and it told the story of how he goes into the cupboard, sees mice eating the grain, and is upset as the other brothers are going to be upset as well. And speaks to the mice and says, "Don't do that anymore." And so it decides to feed them on his own, and he's able to to to, he, to heal the relationship. I suppose is the best way of saying it. I thought that was great. What a great story! And so I began to look for more about Saint Martin, and there's more that are just really, really terrific. His extraordinary ability to connect with animals, and to bring animals and people together in really positive ways. It's quite amazing. And I don't mean this disrespectfully, but he almost seems like Dr. Doolittle in a way, um, as much as St. Francis. Yeah, except (laughs) he doesn't speak to them. He doesn't speak ever to them. It's really... He doesn't. No, I mean, he doesn't. I mean, it's not like he can understand their language. It's just instead a a great empathy and an ability to understand Mm. how animals and people react to each other. I was at, there is a St. Martin de Porres Marianist school in Uniondale, New York. I was at that a while ago, I guess last November. And it's if you walked into that school right now, it really is the spirit of St. Martin. You walk into a lobby filled with macaws. Down one hall, saltwater tanks. Down another hall, freshwater tanks. Um, there's a zoo in the school that, that students vie to take care of. When you walk to classes, you walk through courtyards that are filled with peacocks. It's fantastic. Wow. Best of all, there are dogs that roam the halls. And when I asked, you know, how does this work? And he says, well, uh, they talked about the fact that, that the created order, how important the created order is, and how they can connect kids to that created order. But then he also said, practically speaking, say two kids get in a fight, a dog pads up, instantly it de-escalates. Instantly the kids will be focused on the dog and will take away all the escalation. Or a kid who's struggling with reading, Go to the library. The dog. There's a dog in the library. You read to the yes, dog. Yes, yes. You read to for, the dog. For young readers who are maybe less confident or trying to find their way with exactly. reading. Exactly. Right. It takes away... I mean, the dog is not going to judge you. The dog is not going to laugh at you. The dog is going to listen and love you for reading to him. And that's fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the spirit of Martin de Porres. It's exactly right. So I love the story. I just loved it. And I worked hard at it for a long, long time wrote a different, several different versions, different narrative points of view, trying to find some sort of language, voice that would make it pop, that would make the story intriguing. And not sentimental and not just sort of easy, but, I mean, a kind of hard spirituality behind it that kids are going to respond to because the stories are great. Again, with this book, I was struck, maybe even more so than actually the the, the other books that we've been speaking about today, Gary, about the the level of difficult ideas or mm-hmm. social injustice or there's a moment in the book where one of i think it might be it might be one of the priests or one of the the the, the or the the moneyed people yeah. calls martin uh, like mongrel yeah that's which was exactly what they called him he was the son of a conquistador a great a great powerful man and a slave an african slave um in peru and so he had no role anywhere, in neither world was he accepted. And so he lives in these terrible, terrible burials, these slums, um, where the river just overflows all the time with his sickness and illness. 
And his father, and this is all true, his father finally comes and is ashamed. He sees what he's done to his own children, and he brings him um, away, and he takes him to the capital city, and he teaches him, he, he apprentices him, and Martin becomes this amazing guy who is an extraordinary doctor at the same time that he remembers where he came from. He remembers with tremendous empathy the needs of those whom he's left behind, and so he doesn't leave them behind. It's fantastic. It's a great story. Will you read us? Sure. Uh, this is the opening scene when his, his mother is bringing him to be baptized here. What happened? Did you know what happened to his mother? Because I did wonder. Because it doesn't say that the, the father brought her along. Exactly. Or... He did not. Um, but she drops out and the, the sister drops out of all the stories. Both of those characters are gone from the stories. So once Martine comes back, we don't know anything about what happened to them. But that's why when the illustrator, David, was working on the book, he asked me what happens to the sister. And I said, no one knows. But in his reading, he just would not accept that she would just leave or that she'd be uninterested in her brother's life or anything. And so though he, she doesn't appear in the text, she does continue to appear in the illustrations. And she's by his side throughout his work and also by his side as he dies. It's not clear if that's true in sort of literal history, but certainly in spiritual history, I think you could say, yeah, that's exactly right. Anna hurried out of the barrios of Lima and onto the plaza. She carried a quiet baby wrapped closely so that no one could see him, but no one was looking. The, slaves bo the slave boys sweeping the plaza saw only the dusty cobblestones. The Spanish royals sipping lemon ices saw only their ruby rings. And the priests standing on the cathedral steps saw only another beggar and turned away. Anna carried the baby into the cool dark of the cathedral, but when the priest unwrapped him, he frowned. Is the child's father Spanish, he asked. Anna's heart beat quickly. And you are African, he said. Anna nodded. The priest frowned again. The baby's father was a royal conqueror. His mother was a slave. The baby looked up at him with dark eyes. Who is this child, asked the priest. He has a rose in the desert, said Anna. The priest frowned even more. The baby would have no name to be remembered. He would live by sweeping the cobblestones of the plaza or selling lemon ices to the royals or begging on the cathedral steps. So the priest dipped his hand into the holy water. I baptize you, the son of an unknown father. I will call him Martin, said Anna. But the priest still frowned. Yeah. Anna. The dialogue there is, is all historical. It's all straight. Um, it's exactly what the priest said, or at least the stories, what they say. Yeah. And so his mother, Anna, was the one that said the rose in the desert. Right. That was from research. Right. That's, um, and that's why the book is, the subtitle is The Rose in the Desert, because it's exactly what he is. And it's a, obviously a very, very powerful spiritual image, the rose in the desert as well. Yeah. So the rest of the book follows out how it is that this kiddo is... So extraordinary, and given all the difficulties of his life, somehow he's able to overcome those and to, be, to remain this kid who is not embittered, is not angry, who is instead someone who is able to control that and with humility show his great love. And that's what wins people over. It's quite an amazing thing. And, and when we were off air for a moment, Gary, you said that you had... Um 
kind of an interesting working relationship with the illustrator, David Diaz. With picture books, the author and the illustrator do not communicate. In fact, it's sort of forbidden. You don't communicate. And though it sounds odd, what it's meant to do is to keep the, the illustrator sort of safe away from the, the author, author saying, you have to do it this way. Because the illustrator has to be absolutely as free in his or her interpretation as I was when I worked on the book earlier on. And I'm not the visual guy. I mean, that's, that's the illustrator. So David and I did not speak, did not speak, and I had met him. And then we were down in um, southern Mississippi, University of Southern Mississippi. We were in the same room, and I saw him over there. And I thought, wow, should I go? Because I knew he was working on it. Should I go talk to him? And I think he saw me, and he thought, wow, should I go talk to him? And finally, he did come over and introduced himself. And he leaned down. And here's how hard, hard and fast this rule is. He leaned down and whispered, Gary, I have some questions. As if, as if we're going to get in trouble. <laughs> I have some questions. So that night, we were going to some gig. And we're both in the back of a station wagon in the dark, being driven by two librarians to the gig. And he leans over to me, still whispering. <laughs> and he begins to ask questions about the, the sister and about the mother. And we talk about those issues particularly. And I, I, it struck me as so funny that we, I mean, here we are working on the same book, but we couldn't talk about it. But he came up with these brilliant solutions and really interesting things. So, it, I mean, as I said, the, the sister remains in the book. The mother right. doesn't. But also on the page when he's planting the lemon seeds, these wonderful, amazing lemon seeds, I had said plural, but he puts one down. And he's, in the picture, you see only one going in. And David said, that's to show how powerful his faith is. He only needs the one. And that tree will grow there. He doesn't need to put several. Mm-hmm. That is great. What a great idea. It's a very powerful idea. And all the way through, of course, there are these roses that are blossoming everywhere. It's, to, to, to I'll carry on the subtitle, it's a brilliant, brilliant set of illustrations. Just brilliant. And and so and it is. I mean, it's amazing because by the end, as you mentioned um, in the book, Martin, you see his life from when he was a baby to his deathbed, right? Quite literally way. in right. the picture. Right. Um, and this is a children's book, and yet it is uplifting. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It, and when you're writing a biography for children, one of the ways, and in a picture book format. You can either choose an episode which stands as a for the whole, kind of a synecdoche for the whole, or you can try and cover as much as possible the whole and give a flavor. But that means you're going to move very quickly, and each episode is going to be very brisk. And that's eventually what I decided to do. Did you try to write it the other way first? I did, yeah. I couldn't decide which way, which episode would stand for it. Plus, we had already there already was a children's book with the mice, the one I mentioned before, the mouse episode. And I thought, I don't want to just do the same thing, obviously. So I tried to do the whole. Yeah. And and you did. <laughs> <laughs> because of I course suppose. I was like, for a minute I was like, well, he has to get better. <laughs> I almost didn't want to. <laughs> and he does. I mean, by the end of the book, he has really triumphed. His, his life is a triumph. And Yes. Well, um, and it's a triumph of the spirit. A triumph of the spirit, right. And though he is not one of the saints that's best known around the world in Lima... He would be best known. Yes. And, uh, you know, there, my editor was down in, oh, dang, Central America, and she found a, um, a guy who was carving statues, and she bought me one of St. Martin. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Gary, thank you so much for talking with me today. This thank you. Been it's been great fun. Come back thank any you. time. Tomorrow, 
Gary Schmidt will be speaking at UMA 510 PN. What came from the stars, Martin de Porres, and many other books. You've, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. to his right, throwing in the end zone for Arrington, caught, touchdown Michigan. Takes the snap, looking to throw near side, now he's going to go far, over the middle, he's got a man, caught, touchdown Michigan. Adrian Arrington, wide open in the back of the end zone, over the middle, and Michigan marches right down the field, no problem, they have the lead again, it's 37-35, to 35. four wide receivers, T-bone and shotgun. Moore lined up to his right. He's going to throw for it. Pressure coming. He's rolling to his left. Still looking, still looking. He's going, he's throwing down. He throws up a prayer. He's got a man, and it is incomplete. Michigan's going to win the 2008 Capital One Bowl as Lloyd Carr's last game as the University of Michigan head football coach. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN 88.3 FM.